0: Welcome to the T.D. Jakes Podcast. This episode, we have Hollywood power couple Devon Franklin and wife Megan Good. This conversation took place at our annual Project Gideon conference. Here's part one of two. Let's get into it. It has often been said that a man who needs a long introduction doesn't deserve one. And a man who deserves a long introduction doesn't need one. Ladies and gentlemen, Bishop T.D. Jakes. Thank
1: you. Come on, give it up for Jesus in this place. Wow, you can do better than that. Make some noise in this place. Yeah. Wow, 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 wow. Before you sit down and hug somebody, whether you like them or not, just, just, just hug them. <laughs> David said, I was glad when they said unto me, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. It was a rare and rich and special honor uh, for me to share the stage with my spiritual father, Bishop Watkins. Yeah, yeah, very special. We have never talked about each other on stage in front of people before or shared The roots. People see the tree, but they don't see the roots. Everything that's worth saving comes from a deep place. Comes from a deep place. And we had to pick what stories we told. I had to pick because I didn't want to fall out in front of y'all. Then when he got to talking about being more blessed than Moses, I had to shut him down because I was going to collapse on the floor. I don't mind crying, but it was going to be like the ugly cry. You know, the ugly cry. And I knew it was going to be on YouTube and everything. It was, it was going to be that decent cry. It was going to be that, that fallout, all dignity gone, collapse on the stage and turn into a three year old cry. Uh, but it, I'm so blessed. There were pillars under me. There were pillars under me, and they weren't famous people. See, a lot of times you pick your pillars by the sides of the guy's church because you're trying to borrow influence. I, would, I didn't need influence. I could get my own influence. I needed roots. I needed roots. I needed roots. I needed roots. And I think one of my connections with you all is that I started preaching so young. I started preaching so young. I was 19. When I started preaching, I was 22. When I started pastoring, I was the youngest person in the church, and I was the pastor. And I was telling Pastor Byron Carter back in the back that I uh, I was conducting funerals in a 1979 silver anniversary Trans Am, and everybody else had black cars. All old preachers had black cars, and they looked real preachery. And I was leading the funeral procession. <laughs> It kind of messes up the image, you know. (laughs) Yeah, because I was trying to manage who I was with who I was. And they were contradictions. Because had I been who I was, I was 22. But I was a pastor. The oxymoron of living between my calling and my youth was perplexing. So I'm a perfect guy to talk to you. I pastored two years single. I pastored two of my old girlfriends. And then I didn't marry neither one of them. And went to another city and married a girl and brought her back to the church. And they said she was a witch. And they said she had a spell on me and they formed a prayer circle to try to break the witchcraft (laughs) that had taken over the pastor. (laughs) See, I just say that so you can get that, you know, whatever you're going through, (laughs) called me. (laughs) Yeah, she survived all of that, you know, all of those stages and ages and everything, and to have survived. I can't really make you know What it was like for me to stand on stage with Bishop Watkins, because you see us now, but we see each other through the ages. And how rich it is to have a relationship that survives. It's worth the fight. It's worth the fight not to have to explain yourself. There's nothing about me to know that he doesn't know. Nothing. Nothing about me that he doesn't know. There's nothing about him that I don't know. If he were to die and come back, we wouldn't have to talk about nothing. Real mentorship requires complete nudity. And that's why a lot of you don't have it, because you're faking to your mentor. And it's like wearing clothes at your doctor's office. He can't treat you if he can't see you. You understand what I'm saying? And in the process, there's reciprocity. No matter what's wrong with you or right with you or, or you're struggling with, you still have something to offer. And what you're trying to do is to get the cream to come to the top. Everybody has contradictions. Everybody. Everybody. Everybody everybody, okay, managing all of that is one of the issues that makes me want to speak to you. What's It's hard to figure out what's normal and what's not, especially when you don't talk to nobody. And the only people you talk to are the people who have the same disease you do. <laughs> I ain't going to start that. That's not where we're going today. I'm going to be nice today. I'm going to be nice today. <laughs> don't be. Just get all in it. Get, get all in it. And and now you're leading, but you don't know exactly where you're going. And Pastor Carter and I were talking about what it was like to counsel people who are older than you. And you got toddlers and they got teenagers. And they come into you for advice about something you have never experienced. Or they got kids in college and you got kids in kindergarten. And there you are supposed to be an expert about something that you ain't that good at yourself. The pressure to be masterful when you're screaming to be somebody's student. I pray that when this is over that you would have the courage to be a student again. That you wouldn't be so egotistical into trying to impress somebody with how bright you are. I pray you'd be a fool again. The smartest people that I have ever met were only smart because they came at life from the position of a fool and dared to ask the questions that insecure people don't have the courage to ask. You have to be a big person to make yourself vulnerable. Little people try to make themselves big. Big people are safe enough in who they are to be vulnerable. And out of that comes the wellspring of greatness It's not that you're trying to look good for the moment. You're trying to be masterful for a lifetime. And so everybody's teacher is somebody's student. Everybody's scholar must be somebody's fool. Do you have the courage to be both? When Samson says he has no place to lay his head, he says, I'm so mighty that I don't have any place to be weak. You cannot continue to be mighty publicly if you can't be weak privately. So, we're going to have a good day today, okay? How many of you are glad you came? (laughs) We've got some good stuff in store for you. I want to say to you, preaching is important. It's real important. Speech is important. I want you to get on your software programs and download Software programs that feed you a word a day and I want you to take that word and use it all day long until you are not limited in your vocabulary. Rembrandt, no matter how good he was, couldn't paint if he didn't have the colors. You can't speak if you don't have the language. You won't be locked down to colloquialisms if you have an extensive vocabulary. You can operate in both worlds. You can break it down when you need to break it down. You can build it up when you need to build it up. And you will teach your children to speak. Come off of them iPhones and talk. People will never know your heart in a text. That's why you're so empty. They see something in your eyes that they don't get out of your words. Don't hide behind them machines. Those machines are a blessing and a curse to you. Have the courage to face somebody and talk to them and tell them what you feel. How can you expect to be understood when you only express yourself in sound bites and texts and clicks? I understand you when I see your head drop, when I see your eyes glaze over, when your lips quiver. That's communication too. A really good leader is so good that he doesn't have to talk to those that follow him. The people who follow me can see my face. Something happened in a meeting the other day. I was so hot. <laughs> I didn't trust myself to speak. Because if I'd have said something, it's just going to be bad. I just sat back in the chair and I just looked, and people went to running every which way. Because communication is not just what comes through your lips, it's what comes through your eyes, it's, it's how your nose moves, it's everything. Stop hiding. Come out from behind them computers and texting people things that you need to face them to say. Stop hiding. You'll never get to what Bishop Watkins and I have. We couldn't do that in text, we did that in tears. We did that in groaning and moaning until I became comfortable to let him see my vulnerabilities. It's easy to show people what you're good at, it's frightening to show them how screwed up you are behind it. Because this is an opiate question that everyone carries in their heart. If you knew who I really was, would you still love me? Until you answer that question, you are poor, no matter how much money you have. We got some good stuff for you. I was telling Pastor Carter in the back how hard it was to be pastoring at 22. Because at 22, you got young people problems. And you're trying to be this great man of God. The man of God is coming. I wish I could say what I'm thinking, but it's it's ladies in the room. (laughs) I'm going to be respectful. I was 22. (laughs) The the man of God had issues. (laughs) The man of God had serious issues. He still does. They're just not quite as bad as they was at 22. <laughs> you, you understand what I'm saying? The oxymoron between who God has called you to be, okay? Who God has called you to be and who you are. Antar, come here. Look at how long it took him to get up here. I called him to be. When I called him, he wasn't here. Thank you very much. When God called you, you are not, and you have to journey. He started coming, and somebody got in his way. He had to move around him. He had to run. He had to come around the corner. He had to come up the steps. And finally, he reached the hope of his calling. And I waited on him. I knew he wasn't there. That's why I called him. And see, your problem is God called you, and you trying to act like you're there. No, you're not there. You got a journey to be there. You're gonna spend all of your life running up the aisle, coming around the corner, and coming up the steps, and dodging people, and making mistakes. And finally, when you get there, you're finished. Tell somebody, say he called me. <laughs> 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 it, 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 I tried to get him not to call me. I told him I said you're not getting no good deal. <laughs> I said, look, I'm going to mess this up like nobody has ever messed this up before. This is going to be like it's not going to be like a little bad, it's going to be real bad. Okay, because you know I'm a fool. Why are you calling me? Go away. Leave me alone. I'm honored. I'm flattered. Bye. Horrifying. I walked around and around Shawnee Golf Course down in West Virginia with tears running down my face trying to talk him out of me. I don't want that heat on me. This is a mistake. I told him verbatim, Why don't you call one of them good people? Call one of them good people. And I'll help them. Leave me alone. Because I'm not there. I'm honored that you know my name. And in the midst of all of them people, you called me. So I stopped what I was doing and I turned my head but look at how far I got to come to get to you. Wow. And I'm not sure. This is verbatim what I talk about. It's, I, I can see it right now. I said, you're asking a crippled man to run a race. How can I win? My legs are twisted. My feet are broke. And when I started preaching, see, what you have to understand is your pain is your power. Your pain, your your dysfunction is your function. Your pain is your power. One of the greatest messages of my youth was Mephibosheth. I could preach Mephibosheth until you fainted. They literally had to carry people out of the church. One woman, they had to get baptismal robes and wrap her up, and she'd come completely out of her clothes. And I was still preaching Mephibosheth. And the reason I could preach Mephibosheth was so much power. It's because I was Mephibosheth. If I could describe him because I was him, somebody dropped me. (laughs) I could preach it really, really good up till about, about 40. I got in my 40s. I can't preach it good. Now I can preach it, but I can't preach it good now. I don't hurt bad enough. I can't find that spot no more I used to step over in that spot And my legs didn't work And everything yeah. uh, and, and when I got strong enough That I could stand I couldn't find that spot In my heart That screamed loud enough To be dropped on the floor Like Mephibosheth And to know that I should have been king But because I was messed up I would never be king To get me out load of load uh, Let me stop Let me stop I mean, I I ain't bad. I can still do pretty good. But I used to could do it till you'd have to run out the room. Because if when I opened up my pain, the room would flood in it. And I would start crawling across the floor like Mephibosheth did when they dropped him on the floor. And he said, I'm a dead dog. And there he was crawling, trying to get to a chair so he could sit with the princess, though he knew he wasn't one of them. But if he sat at the table, he appeared to be one of them. Because the tablecloth hid. <laughs> let me stop, let me stop, let me stop. <laughs> you understand? That doesn't come from an encyclopedia, a concordance, a Bible dictionary. That comes from hooking your pain into the text and pulling it. Ah! See, nobody can imitate it because unless you had suffered like I suffered, you couldn't connect like I connected. You had to be a legitimate, card-carrying, handicapped, wounded soul in order to articulate what it was like to be Mephibosheth. Stop running from your pain. Run into it. It's your edge. It's your advantage. It's your secret weapon. All night long, every time I woke up, I kept thinking about what you said about firing your board members. (laughs) Insanity. You can't say stuff like that because you read it in a book. You can't steal it, you can't imitate it. It has to come from a deep place. You see what I'm saying? See, the problem is what I'm trying to get you to is a place of power. You got technique, you got style, you got fashion, you got clothes, you got technology. But the reason you're anointed getting strong is because you run from your pain. You're phony. You don't understand the expense of ministry requires that you strip. It isn't so important that you tell your secrets. It's important that you use your secrets. You're talking about keeping it real. Everybody can't handle it real. You tell your business they're going to use it against you. But when you get ready to draw, you draw from everything that broke in you. And you throw everything that broke in you at them. Throw it all at them. Throw it all, everything with no inhibitions. How can you be so uninhibited in the bedroom and get bound in the pulpit? God doesn't recognize you. God doesn't recognize you. God doesn't recognize you. You all dressed up in that phoniness. He doesn't recognize you. He doesn't recognize you. You got to come out from under them fig leaves naked, Adam. You got to come out there. Where are you? I heard that voice. I was naked. I was afraid. I hid, that's you, I hid my uh I showed him my preacher I hid myself God does not recognize you the anointing will only fall on you not your secret agent, not your imposter not your representative not your ambassador and nobody can steal what God falls on you when it's yours many can imitate you but no one can duplicate you because it is a unique gift between you and your father because you share this common bond of intimacy, intimacy, and your problem is you fake too much. You put on this preacher outfit and you get up there and you start hitting on more style and technique and you give everything except what matters. You give your head, you give your language, you give your outline, you give your speech. But God wants your heart. God wants your heart, your ugly cry heart. Where everything in you comes out. It costs that much. It costs that much. It's the difference between good and great. People will not follow good. They will only follow great. You haven't ministered until when you minister and you walk off the stage and you feel vulnerable and exposed and uncomfortable. And and you go off to the hotel room and you think, oh God, I said too much. (laughs) Did they see me? They're gonna they saw me. Oh, why do I do that? That's so stupid. And you're walking around in the room like because you stripped. You can never cut covenant with clothes on. Every covenant that ever mattered had to be done naked. Stripped. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, he died naked. They painted him with the loincloth off, but he died naked. That was the shame of the cross. That he was naked before his followers. Stripped. They stripped oh let me stop it. They stripped him that you might be covered. They stripped him and put a crown of thorns upon his head. And when he bled, the only thing that covered his nakedness was the blood. He bled his clothes. He was wounded. Do you understand what we're trying to give you this week? I want this level of anointing to stay in the earth. I don't want us to die and not be here because that is the power of God. Not the style, not the technique. I'm talking about understanding the text till you become one with the text. And you feel the Savior's shame standing on the cross in front of people who admired him naked. It's not hard that he walked on water. That's glorious. He raised the dead. That's glorious. But to be naked on the cross and have to bleed your clothes, that's the gospel. And he told you, pick up your cross and follow me. I'm going to show you how to do this. And there you are in a three-piece suit on the cross. Talk about wondering why it doesn't work. It doesn't work because you're not willing to strip. You preach about faith, but you don't tell us about fear. But it is the fear, is the canvas that the faith is painted on. And so your message doesn't resonate, and your church would quadruple if you would pay the cost of discipleship. You got our clothes, you got our style, you got our technique, you got our titles. You don't have our pain. You have it. You won't show it. You hide behind your electronics. And you show us good pictures of you so people will like you. And you think that if you get enough people to like you, you will like you. It doesn't work that way. You have to come trembling. And come insecure. When I call Antar, I didn't tell him what I wanted. I just said, "Antar, come here." It wasn't a question. It was a command. I mean, come like you are. Come not knowing what I want. Come not knowing what's going to happen. Come scared. Come nervous. Come vulnerable. But come. That's what God did when He called you. Bring all of you the good and the bad, the right and the wrong, the weak and the strong, and say, here am I. Send me. I'll go. They may kill me, but I'll go. Do you hear me? See, you you get into arguments about who's the baddest preacher and who can preach the best. It don't matter about style. People follow effective go to school and learn how to preach. I can show you all kind of people got more doctorates, got more degrees than a thermometer. and got 50 people. Because they're throwing their head at the crowd. But not their heart. Now God bless the child that can throw both. Because if you have your head right and you know your stuff, nobody can ever take knowledge from you. They cannot take what you know. And they cannot take what you've been through. They cannot take what you've been through. And what I'm trying to get you to do is to produce on a higher level and to think on a higher level. When Shonda was talking yesterday, I thought, don't joke about that. It costs her too much to say that for you to laugh. It's stupid, it's silly, it's the wrong time to laugh. Mentoring can tell you what's funny and what's not. Laying around for days and days with no name because you wasn't what your parents expected that hurt to say that. That's what I mean about stripped. Everything you say that is important will come from the place of your pain. And I know she went home and wrestled with maybe I shouldn't have said it. You did, didn't you? I know you did. That's why when you preach and if you do it right and you come back from ministry, who you come back with is important. Because if you are Samson before the men, what you need is a place to lay your head. You don't want to have to come home and kill something else. I've been killing all day. <laughs> One of the hardest things to manage is sex, your sexuality and your theology. Because they both come from God. The God who gave you the fire then demands that you contain the fire he gave you. Seemed like it would be easier if you just didn't give it to me. <laughs> that would just settle the whole thing. Just let me be nerdish. Let me be indifferent. Why would you make me a freak? And then tell me not to be freaky. <laughs> it, it, it is not like I applied to be a freak. <laughs> okay I did not send in an application. To make me nasty, <laughs> y'all can't handle me. Let me go on back. <coughs> yeah, I didn't campaign for it or nothing like that. It just happened, it comes with being creative. See, a creative mind always wonders. <laughs> <laughs> wonder wonder what would happen if I put this right there and if I move this over there and if I take this and turn it that way wonder what it would turn into I love you. see you thought you was the only one didn't you My baby boy had his 16th birthday party at my house. I let him do whatever he wanted to do. He blacked out my living room, moved out all the furniture, brought in lights, and brought in all of his friends to have their 16th birthday party. And so they had the music going, and they was rocking, and they was reeling. And I tried to give him a little bit of space, but not too much, so every now and then I'd walk through, you know. (laughs) Just like I was going to get a Coke or something, just checking them out. And so one of the little kids at the high school, I call little kids, but was a high school kid. One of the kids, he was just a rocket. And he was a real, and he was going to educate me. He said, hey, Bishop, he said, this is how we do it. And I said, hey, son. I said, that's how we did it, too. That's how you got here. <laughs> you think you discovered America, Columbus. But we was the Indians when you got here, Negro. Do you really think that we didn't experience or experiment? Y'all are so funny because you think you're the first young people. It's so crazy. We invented freak. We were the generation who burned our bras and and we, we had orgies and we were the generation of Aquarius. We were Woodstock. We was high when you were sperm cells. Y'all are crazy. Go play somewhere. Go away. Go away. Don't talk to me. The fact that you think you are exceptional gives you permission to be dysfunctional. The God who put that in you now asks you to manage it, to manage your hunger. It's kind of like the same God who put the tree in the Garden of Eden and then said you can't have none. Because love for him is proven by what you are willing to give up. Love is always proven by sacrifice, and where there is no sacrifice, there is no love. If I'm the only man on the planet and you say you love me, it means nothing. You got no choice. I'm all that's left. But if you walk past the hundred to get to me, now your presence says something. Because you preferred me. You said, this is how much I love you. I'd walk past this and, this and this and this and this and this to get to you. Yeah. Abraham said, that's my son. Ismail is my son. I have bond to the bond woman. You can't sleep with a woman and not bond with her. Not hear her secrets. To feel her flesh tremble in your hands, her voice whimper in your ear. He bonded with the bond woman. And all of a sudden, it was easy for Sarah to say, Put her out. You didn't hear her. You didn't hold her. You didn't, you didn't smell her. You didn't touch her. You didn't hear about her dreams and what she wanted to be. It's easy to put out what you have no attachment to. But when you are bond to the bond woman, now it has become an issue. And so he says to Hagar, I will always love you. And I know many nights I will lay in bed and remember things that only you and I could remember. I know I will wrap my arms around a pillow and wish to God that the pillow was you. I know I will sniff it to smell your cologne. I will always love you. But as much as I love you, I love him more. And I'm going to walk away limping while I walk. But when you see my back, don't you ever think that it changed my heart. Because I am bond to the bond woman. And when he turned his back on her and left her in the wilderness, that turning was praise to God. It is the sacrifice, (laughs) it is the sacrifice of praise. Where there is no sacrifice, where there is no discipline, there can be no love. Love legitimizes itself in the pain you bear to be with me. If it is easy, it is not couple that I have brought today.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Pay the price. To be who they are. They are the epitome of the odd couple. They look like brothers and sisters. They are both beautiful people, and yet they are the odd couple. The preacher who married the actress. Two different worlds. One of my favorite lines in the movie was this line. A bird and a fish can fall in love. But where would they live? (laughs) This bird and this fish (laughs) (laughs) fell in love and had to settle the dispute water or air but real love always finds a way Megan Good is an award winning actress And producer who most recently starred in the lead in the Fox series Minority Report. She top lined some of Hollywood's biggest blockbusters, including Think Like a Man, Think Like a Man 2, Anchor Man, The Legend, Continue, Stomp the Yard, and the critically acclaimed Eve's Bayou. She's also co-founder of the Greater Good Foundation, a nonprofit organization that advocates for the empowerment and enrichment. Of young women, would you welcome to the stage the erudite, the charismatic, the pristine, the voluptuous Megan Good? Set her right by me. I want you to sit right there, Megan. Sit right there. Sit right there. Wait a minute. Okay, you sit right there. How you doing, baby?
2: Good.
1: I love you. I love you too. Get this picture. Before Devon comes, get get this picture. Put this on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, everything. (laughs) My 10 minutes of fame. (laughs) Devon Franklin is a growing force. A dynamic force, a profound, gifted force in entertainment and media. Beliefnet named him one of the most influential Christians under 40. The best-selling author of Produced by Faith, Enjoy Real Success Without Losing Your True Self, is also the president and CEO of Franklin Entertainment, a preacher not pastor, a preacher, a motivational speaker. He most recently produced the Sony Pictures film "Miracles from Heaven," starring Jennifer Garner. We really co-produced it, but it's his bio, so I'm gonna let him have it. He's a graduate. <laughs> He's a graduate of the University of Southern California. He is the Boaz to Megan Good. They were married in the summer of 2012, and now they live in Los Angeles, California. Would you welcome to the stage Reverend Devon Franklin. Come on, clap your hands, Megan Walker, would you? (laughs) Woo! Have a seat. What's up? How y'all doing? How you bothering them <laughs> <laughs> This is uh, an exciting opportunity. You're very unique people, very gifted people. I set the stage the way I did because I wanted them to understand or to sense the bridge that you built between two worlds to come together. I recognize uh, the beauty of love and marriage. Let's begin by telling them how you met.
2: Devon and I met um, about five years before Jumping the Broom um, on a general meeting where I came into his office. He had seen this little movie that I did, and my manager had set up the meeting for us to meet. And we just kind of bonded over being Christians and being in the industry. And, you know, I thought, wow, he's really cute, but, you know, he's the guy who gives you the job. So beyond that, I didn't think anything else. And then over the years, I would see him at different church functions, different industry functions, whatever it may be. And it wasn't until Jumping the Broom, which you asked so yes. that we uh, came together and got a chance to get to know each other as friends, strictly platonically, but just getting to know each other. And I remember saying to a friend of mine at the time, I was like, wow, that's the kind of guy I wish I could marry. Because of his humility, his heart, his love for other people, just totally what I kind of felt was almost out of my league. And so... Um, At the time, I was getting out of a relationship that I was in for almost four years, and God was dealing with me about that, and in that prayer time that I was just like, Lord, what do you want me to be doing? God was like, get out of that relationship, spend time working on yourself, and by the way, Devon's your husband. And I was like, what? And I was like, okay. I was like, Lord, what do you want me to do with that? And he was like, nothing, just work on yourself. And it was about nine months before Devon actually asked me out. And in that time, I realized why he wanted me to work on myself, and it was because I was so damaged from past relationships. I was so damaged from all the baggage I had picked up, from all the insecurity, from emotional abuse rather done to me or done to myself, upbringing, whatever it may have been. And so that time was God really wanted me to start preparing myself for what was coming next.
1: Wait a minute, Megan. How in the world could a woman like you have insecurity? you're absolutely gorgeous, you're young, you're successful, you're accomplished, you're articulate, you're well-spoken. You've got clusters of women who are haters just because you are so successful. And you're saying that beneath all of that, it is yet possible to have insecurities.
2: Absolutely, thank you. Yeah, we all do, every single one of us, you know. For me, my biggest thing was... Struggling with unacceptance, you know, feeling feelings of unworthiness. You know, I didn't grow up in the church, but I got saved when I was 12. I was baptized when I was 19. I've always had a strong relationship with God. So anytime I would make a mistake or even in past relationships where I wasn't celibate, that I carried really deep feelings of just like unworthiness or just not feeling good about myself and and then I would spend time trying to run from those feelings knowing that God loved me but instead of dealing with it, you know, going out every night or drinking too much or whatever it may be just so I could escape the feeling of frustration, you know.
1: One of the and, things that she said that I think is quite profound years ago when I started ministry at Woman Art Loose, one of the things that I shared, I think maybe when I was about 30 is that sin is how we medicate the pain. And so telling people not to sin is ineffective if you don't tell them how to eradicate the pain. Because it is the pain that pushes the sin through the syringe into the bloodstream of the human soul. And then you find yourself in such situations. Devon, of all the options and opportunities and people that both of you could have chosen, but this is for you, did bells go off? Did whistles come off? Did
0: angels come down and land on your shoulder? What happened? Uh, No, (laughs) they did not, actually. When we met for the first time, I was an executive. I just got to Sony, and I think we were just starting to work on Not Easily Broken. And so I meet a lot of actors and a lot of actresses. So, you know, her manager, who I knew, we worked together when I was at Tracy Edmonds Company. And he's like, hey, I want you to meet Megan. I was like, great, because I saw the film she produced and she was awesome in it. So we sat down and it's just like a general meeting. You know, I mean, I meet a lot of talent. I mean, I've met everyone from, you know, Megan to Nicki Minaj to Sierra. I mean, you name it. I probably sat down with them about film. So it was similar. It was like, okay, good conversation. That was it. We would see each other over the years on the lot and she's making good. So it's like you always have that, you know, when you're an executive and they're the talent, there's that divide. And so you always treat them like the talent. Hey, you want to make sure they're happy and cool, but you never think that, oh, wow, yeah, right, we have a chance. No, not at all. was never a thought. So when we worked on Jumping the Broom and we started talking, it was strange to me how down to earth she was, how we really had a, a good friendship that we were building. And then at the premiere party, what was fascinating is that we started having a conversation after the screening. And as we're talking, I'm like, what's going on here? Like, is making Good throwing me a vibe? (laughs) I'm like, wait, you know, it's like we're talking here, but there's something else going on. And we couldn't even finish the conversation because we kept getting interrupted.
2: And meanwhile, I had already told my friends and family that he was my husband like a few months before that. So some of my friends were like, and you sound crazy. And uh, I didn't you know, know any of that. And I started, and I remember I was telling, I came down to his church to give my testimony along with Laz Alonzo, and I told my god sister in the car on the way down there, and this was about three months before the premiere, I was like, you're going to meet my husband tonight. And she was like, does he know that he's your husband? <laughs> and I was like... No, I didn't. I was like, no, he doesn't, but he is. And she was like, okay. And so... Um, That night at the premiere party, me and all my girlfriends, there was about five of us, were literally like following him around the party like a bunch of teenage
0: girls. And And I I had no idea. I'm literally just doing my thing, you know, not even – I had my family there. And we ran into each other and we took a picture with all of our families that night having no idea – that's ultimately what you what God had was no doing. idea. I didn't.
1: I had no idea. I was on the set of jumping the broom. I was in the movie and didn't know that they were over there going. <laughs> yeah, I was on the red carpet with them at the after party and all of this is going on underneath the surface. Wow. Yeah. yeah.
0: And what was so for me, it was like once when we finished that conversation, I was like, look, I'm getting ready to go promote produce by faith. So when I get off of the book tour, we'll go hang out. So when I came off the book tour, we hung out the first night. But again, you know, it's like you just never know. You just like, you know, we had a good first date, but it really wasn't a date. It was like, well, is this business? Is this not? I just didn't know. You know, sometimes, you know, men can be a little slow. So we hung out again. (laughs) It's true. We hung out again. Uh, We went to see Prince at the House of Blues, and that was great. We had a phenomenal time. And it was the third date when I finally got the memo that, wow, this is what was happening. But I wasn't necessarily happy initially Mm -hmm. because one of the number one things in my list was I'm not dating actresses Mm -hmm. in the past when I had even gone out to lunch with an actress. The result was crazy. So I just said, I don't want that in my life. That was one of the things on my list. But God was like, no, I'm trying to bring you love. Are you going to reject it because it doesn't look like what you think it should? Or are you going to accept it because I know what it needs to be for you? And a good friend of mine had a conversation with me and he said, look, Devon, He said, don't reject her. Don't reject this. He said, this is a good thing for you. You need her and she needs you. And I'm grateful because there was a time when I was like, I just don't know. You know, the paparazzi, the celebrity, the act. It was just like, that wasn't my life. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. And, you know, it's like love is strong, but it takes a little bit more than love to be able to make things work. So I was nervous, but I'm grateful that I hung in there.
1: When you look at (laughs) when you marry somebody, you adopt they're demons, the paparazzi, the lifestyle, the world, their past, their childhood, their family, both of you. <laughs> and your worlds couldn't be any more different in a lot of ways. While you talk about being baptized at 19 and accepting Christ at 12, Megan is not known for her faith. She's known as an actress. She's known as her career. She's known for her talent and her beauty and that sort of thing. On the other hand, your brand has always been around faith. You're a pastor in the Seventh-day Adventist church, a very conservative church, extremely conservative church. I mean, it's not like it's the Church of Christ, okay, or some other denomination that might think differently. They're very fundamental and you branded yourself there and then reach beyond it, and yes, you're branded in Hollywood, you're already to a degree leading a double life. Between being a preacher and being a producer is two different planets, okay? A producer means you gotta go to the party, because the deal is done at the after party, that's where everybody is. But a preacher says you can't go to the party, so you have to already be disciplined to balance, go to the party, but don't go too far. So you're, you're already doing this. didn't <laughs> let me entertain you, praise the Lord. You know, you know, you're already doing that, okay? I understand that, okay? And now you marry into this situation and then make the decision to wait. Tell me about that. How did you, I, I mean, did you like pull straws and did, did you open up a, a Chinese fortune cookie that said they that wait upon the Lord? I mean, you know, in the prime of your life, young and everything like that, you know, and so forth and so on. Yeah. Who brought it up?
0: I can't even remember.
2: I, I had decided just before him and I started dating that I was going to be celibate. And I was talking to my friend Tasha Smith, and I was telling her, I was like, you know, God told me that Devon's my husband. She was like, wow. She was like, did you know he's in ministry? And I was like, no, I didn't know that. And that probably would have scared me away. But the truth is, is now that I know, I know that I know that I know that he's my husband, so it doesn't matter. She was like, that's good. Did you know he's been celibate for like 10 years? And I was like, what? And I was like, well, I'm celibate too. And she was like, no, girl, he's like for real celibate. And I was like, I was like...
1: <laughs> so am I. For <laughs> <laughs> real celibate.
2: Right. So, so when I came into it, I already knew that he was celibate. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't necessarily, it is a conversation that we yeah. ultimately did have because he didn't know that I knew that. Now,
1: now wait a minute. I'm going to ask you a very personal question, but there's a point behind it. You're celibate. You were celibate for 10 years before you married her, but you were not a virgin.
0: No, no, no. I mean, one of the reasons why I became celibate was for that reason. Growing up, you know, we grew up in the church, and it's like, oh, you know, you're supposed to wait, you're supposed to wait, wait. And then I wasn't, and I didn't, but I was still preaching. Um, And just to clarify, like, I'm not a pastor. I came from the Adventist church. My younger brother's a pastor in the Adventist church in Baltimore, but I just preach. Because, you know, I I don't want to take on the mantle of what you all do. You have churches and congregations and and people you're responsible to. And I never would ever want to diminish the importance of that by taking on that title. Because I don't have a church. I don't have a congregation. It's just me, Jesus, and Megan. (laughs) But I was still preaching. I started preaching at 15. And even though I had pursuits and desires to be in Hollywood, I was still out there helping people and trying to instruct them how to live their life in the pulpit. And you were not a virgin.
2: I lost my virginity
1: when I was 19. The reason I bring this up is it's kind of easier to be celibate if you're a virgin. But once you have been a partaker, it sets some stuff in motion. Come on, see? See, because the Bible says about sex that Adam knew Eve. It's headspace, it's knowledge, it's yeah. intimacy. And once you know somebody, even if you don't know them anymore, every time you see them, you know them. Yes. Yeah. And you can never unknow them. Yeah. That's right. You have classified information. So that stuff lives in your head. Yeah. To be celibate in the atmosphere of the ghost of promiscuity mm. yeah. makes the denial that much more severe. Yeah. Because it is easy to deny what you have not experienced, yeah. Yeah. but it's hard to deny that you have tasted the gift, and it was you, and you liked it. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: If you never did it, you could say, oh, it ain't that much. But if you did it, and it rocked your world, yeah. right. then the denial becomes more difficult, yes. yeah. okay? I'm going to bring it where you can get it. <laughs> Don't worry. So you're 10 years into the suffering. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. See, See. you get old enough, celibate is simple. <laughs> but in the prime of your life, the suffering is suffering. And you have made the decision, I'm going to marry this guy that you say is beautiful and attractive and I'm going to be celibate. I'm not going to test drive or nothing? No. Wow. I
2: I already did that, you know, and the result for me... Was never a good one. Even though I learned things in the process, had some good times in past relationship, had some bad times. Ultimately, the result was the same, which was a few years down the line with somebody that I didn't know as well as I thought I knew them. And if had I not been blinded by the codependency of being physical with them, I would have seen who they were a lot sooner and not wasted my twenties.
1: Hold my meal. <laughs> So, wow. so you made this decision to be celibate. How long did you date before you got married? Uh, a little over a year.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, a little over a year with the spotlight on you. Yeah.
0: What made you decide to go public about the wait? You know, it really came from as we started sharing our story. Um, you know, first, the news broke of our engagement. We didn't have anything to do with that. TMZ blasted it out across the world, and then everybody knew because most people at that point didn't know.
1: Wait, wait, wait. I want, because you hit something, it's one of the reasons I wanted you all to be here and thank you for coming. When you're a leader, you live your personal life in the spotlight. It's true. Before you pray for the light, may I please warn you about the heat? You cannot have light without heat. The light might be sexy, but the heat just burns. It burns your children, it burns your wife, it burns everything. Just because you can handle it don't mean your wife can handle it. When you open up to bright light, it's going to hit what you want it to see, and it's going to hit what you don't want it to see. And I thought you were perfect to have up here because we have pastors who are in the light in their community in the way that they've never been before. Talked about in the beauty shop, barbershop, blog sites, everything else. It's no longer where you have a mistake, and it's a private mistake. It is public. And once it is public, it never goes away. And if there's anything unique about your generation beyond anything we could relate to, we got talked about in private places. We were the object of gossip. You get talked about in public places in forms that will never go away. Yeah. Now you have to live with the scandal and a click. So I want you to Google me so you can invite me to preach, but I don't want you to Google me and find out what they said about me. You have more to lose than any generation before you ever had to lose just by being human. And the people who are talking about you are human too. You are held to a very high standard. Everything you did before is irrelevant. Once you step out and say, I am the man of God, people really hear, I am God. They really want you not to be his ambassador to be him. And now you are the first species on the planet to have to hide or manage or kill or chain up your own humanity. It's like a bird who runs for president of the birds and now that he's the president, they chain his wings and say you can't fly. And now all the other birds are flying all around you and you have to assume a position that is unnatural for you for the cause. You cannot fly with the birds and lead them. You have to be willing to be different in order to be respected how difficult is that for you
0: very difficult (laughs) because you know i mean you and i have had these conversations over the years and i'll never forget a conversation we had about this subject when we were making heaven is for real you know you were like you were doing it in a constructive way which is you know you know bishop loves to dig not For skepticism, but because he wants to get to your truth.
1: Right, right.
0: In a way to, because like a lot of the conversations we had was preparation for what I'm doing now. And so one of the things you kept asking me was, why were you so dependent on being celibate and waiting? Why? What was it? And I said, well, you know, no, it's what God wants you to do. And you're like, no, don't give me that weak answer. (laughs) He was no, Seriously, you know, I mean, Bishop and I have had some intense conversations (laughs) over the years. He was like, no, what was it? And I said, I couldn't live life if I got to the end of my life. And God says, here's what I wanted to do with you. But because you had no discipline in that area, here's what I could do with you. I said, I couldn't live my life knowing that I didn't get the fullness of what he had planned because I wasn't obedient in this area. And you said to me, so you're hungry for your purpose more than you're hungry for sex. And that was what kept me in it in the face of ridicule in the face of so much people saying you know are you gay you know are, are you bi i mean even people in the church right because nobody was doing it right nobody ain't nobody talking about it. nobody's doing it so you know they look at you like you're weird and strange so when megan and i came together i was relieved that she was practicing the weight and it was important to her but when we got together it was difficult and then once the news broke It was even harder because they said, oh, Seventh-day Adventist pastor dates Californication actress. Now, she was not a Californication actress. She was on that show just for a few episodes. And I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. I'm a preacher, but my main job was working in Hollywood. But they were using these polar opposites to say these two don't really belong together. Mm. But what was so fascinating is that in the midst of all that, the thing that we kept relying upon was because we had integrity in this area, it laid a foundation for us, and we knew that we were doing it in a way that not only honored God, but allowed us to get to know one another. Because if I didn't really know her and she didn't know me, maybe the headlines would have got to us. Right. But sex not being on the table gave us a chance to really see each other a lot clearer than we probably would have. Thanks for listening to part one of the episode with Devon Franklin and Megan Gooden. Come back next week to check out part two.